Welcome to The Legal Lunch, the legal and business podcast where we talk to the people behind the brand. We look at who they are, why they do what they do, and what makes them tick. I'm your host, Porik Grennan. Thanks for listening. Gavin Wall, welcome to The Legal Lunch. Great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Thanks for having me into your home. It's a beautiful home. Oh, thank you. We're here in Belfast where you live. You're... I think it's fair to say very well known in Belfast and the north uh-huh. of Ireland, maybe not so much down south. And really, we're going to be talking to an entirely new audience, uh, people in the Republic of Ireland, lawyers and anybody working in the legal space. So we want to give a full rounded picture about you, who you are, uh, your different business ventures, your journey uh, and everything to date and where you're going. Because I follow you on LinkedIn. It's a really fascinating career you've had so far and very exciting in terms of what you propose to do. So let's go back in time a little bit. You were a lawyer at one stage. You trained as a solicitor. You swapped mm-hmm. over to become a barrister and you turned it all away to go into business. So let's talk about your legal career, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I was, my father was a solicitor, a well, very well-known practice in Belfast, Donnelly and Wall Solicitors, and I was the eldest child, so I was probably expected to go into law. I wasn't forced, but it was probably expected. Now, um, I was always entrepreneurial. That's probably where my heart lay. But I did the law thing. Two days before I qualified as a solicitor, my dad came home with a, a few drinks on board, um, a few too many drinks on board probably. And he said to me, remember this, two days before I qualified as a solicitor, Gavin, you'll be paddling your own canoe. I'm taking early retirement. Two days before I qualified as a solicitor. And two days later, I was unemployed. So my initial foray into the legal space was an unemployed solicitor and I couldn't get a job for six months. What year was that? So that was 1995, 1995. And I spent six months trying to get a job in law and I couldn't get a job in as a solicitor because my dad hadn't announced that he was taking a retirement. He hadn't announced that. And I was going to solicitor's practices and they were saying, well, why would we, my dad would be well known, why would we hire you and pay for your insurance and your professional indemnity and all the rest of it, and you'll just go off to Donnie Wall soon. And I was thinking, what for fuck's yeah. <laughs> I wish yeah. I could tell you. Yeah. Please hire me. You were sworn to secrecy. And uh, I started my first job after that then was selling car insurance. Okay, so how long did you practice as a solicitor? So probably practiced as a solicitor um, for about four or five years. Okay. And then... You started selling cars, or did you go straight over to the... No, so selling car insurance, and I did that for, um, I think, end of a year. And then my mum found a job advert for a job in the uh, DPP's office, or solicitor in the DPP's office. Prosecuting. Uh, Prosecuting. Only reason I was was attracted to that was because I'd grown up with criminal law, Mm. albeit this was on the other side of the fence. I'd grown up with criminal law, so I was always really, really interested in criminal law, Um, probably after business. That was my next sort of love, as it were. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, I can, I've actually know quite a bit about this, and I'll go in there. So did you remain in prosecution? Or? So I was in there in the sli- in DPP's office for um, four or five years. But it was quite obvious to me after a period of time that I was not like... There's nothing wrong with some great guys and gals in there, but they were quite different to me. Um, there was a lot of moaning about their lives. There was a lot of... Shirkers, a lot of ones, probably 20% brilliant workers, 80% lazy, if I tell the truth, and the 20% keep doing the work for the 80%, and that's okay, but what happens is the 20% get burnt out, and then they actually become miserable as well. Yeah. Sorry, all my old friends in the that's, <laughs> CPP's that's okay. office. It's, you know, it's it's the private versus the public sector. It's yeah. standard across the board. So you left there, and you... After a while, I decided, do you know what, this, this isn't for me. And I probably should have gone to business at that stage. The entrepreneurial thing had gone stronger and stronger and stronger. I'd actually started to build up. During that time as Slizder, I had um, launched an international phone card business on the side. I was the number one in the UK uh, in international phone cards. This is before mobile, sure. you know, used to, somebody dialed in a wee code. Dare I say, I remember them. Yeah, you remember them, yeah. <laughs> so I did that, and then I also started a, a property portfolio. So I was doing those things on the side. Didn't want to be in the DPP's office anymore, and instead of going to business, I, I said, you know what? If the truth be told, I probably still had a bit of a, a 
burning gripe at my father. I felt he'd let me down. Uh, I'm over that now. (laughs) But I felt he'd let me down, and I said, you know what? I want to have a better career than him in law, just to flip and give him the fingers. That's just being honest. Yeah, no, you've spoken about that before, obviously, on your your own podcast. That's probably why I went to the barrister rather than going to business. Sure, because it was nearly seen as a step up, is that it? Yeah, it was seen as a step up, and if I could nail that, I knew being a a barrister was tough. A lot of barristers don't have any work in the north. Probably 50% don't have any work at all. But, you know, I've got the chops. I thought, you know what, I'll go and do the barrister thing. Did that for about seven, seven years. So you went into the fence then? Yeah, I yeah. went straight, honestly. You see my experience, poacher turn gamekeeper or yeah. gamekeeper turn poacher, my experience in the DPP's office, I was a wee bit more of a mature student then at that stage because it uh, you know, wasn't just wet behind the ears. I'd had the experience working, went to the bar, criminal law, day one. I turned down all civil work, made a decision on day one. I'm only going to do criminal. And literally within 12 months, I was absolutely flying. I probably had the most successful first five years of any barrister ever in Northern Ireland, almost yeah. certainly. Well, because you're known, obviously, because of your father. To and no one, yeah. And uh, to be fair, I didn't get any much work in Belfast, but I ended up going to Fermanagh and Trone every day. Did a lot of criminal work down there. I had a really successful practice as a barrister and really enjoyed it. I made plenty of money. Okay. So moving on from that, one, yeah. one day, or maybe not one day, but was there a particular day in time where you said, you know what, I've just had enough of this. I have to follow my heart. Yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, there was one day when I hadn't prepared fully for um, a case. Now, I was probably the only person who did, and lots of Irishers don't prepare um, as well as they should, but sure. I took it, I'm really conscientious. They wing it. Yeah, they wing it. I, I winged it one day because um, I've been doing more property stuff on the side. Did you get a result or not? I, I got away with it. Right. The judge was close to spotting that I hadn't winged it. And whether he knows that I normally am prepared, he probably thought, I ah, probably knows the answer to that. And he didn't ask the next question and I was caught. And I felt that was a client who could have had a negative result because of my lack of preparedness. And I said, you know what, that tells me I've done a bit here. I'd got to the stage where I felt I'd satisfied the desire to be as successful in law as my dad. And my desire to do it for the rest of the life, my life, even though I was earning plenty of money, just it just waned. It just waned. Is your father still alive? Yes. And do you discuss these things? That conversation, whenever he came back with the drink on board, he said to me, son, you'll be paddling your own canoe. We've never discussed it. Okay. Ever. Um, but the one thing that I did say to him, whenever I told him that I was leaving the bar, he said, I think you'll do well, whatever you do. Okay. My dad's... John Stuart Mill, no man is an island. Yeah, um, That's my dad, thinks that he is an island, so you don't get that much from him. He's old school. That was enough. That was enough. He Mind said that to words. me. I was. I felt proud because I felt he, he knew he had done my, my, my legal bit. And it was sure, and I think stage. you've certainly proven him, proven him right. Yeah, since. Touch, touch wood. Yeah, so moving on then from your legal career, let's talk, I mean, you've been a shopkeeper. You've, you've done a lot of things. So yeah. what was the first foray into the business world when you hung up your boots in terms of being okay. a... So I had been looking for... So at that stage, I'd probably 50 buy-to-lets. So I built up a really significant um, buy-to-let portfolio. I had very limited um, uh, uh, debt on that. So I was sitting really well at that time. And what happened was in 2006, before I decided to leave the bar, uh, I bought four bits of land in 2006 with personal guarantees. And my wife was actually a guarantor in one of them. And they were demand loans. I knew there was going to be a property crash. But I believed the property crash would be about 25%, which wouldn't or shouldn't have affected me because I had far more equity in my properties because I was always capital and interest repayment. And I was getting outbid by hairdressers, and uh, no offence to hairdressers, but people who shouldn't have been in property were getting lent money by banks. And essentially, I couldn't give up my wee connection to business as a barrister I felt I had to keep doing property so I bought the four bits of land I thought I'll build those and I'll sell them to these Egypts <laughs> little yeah. that I know pardon my French today yeah. I'll sell them to these people who are Fair buying right. on yields of two and three percent whenever I was always getting ten percent plus yeah and those four bits of land so as I left the bar then the following year so I left the bar the following year I've been looking for a business opportunity and I owned a tiny tiny filling state I mean this Tiniest filling station, 468 square feet. That was the shop size. And I had bought that as a property play 
in 2006 or something like that. And basically, it was never intended to trade from it. But what happened was the tenant sold illegal fuel. Okay. The tenant sold illegal fuel. I got a call one day from uh, to say, customs are here, you better come up. I went up. Customs were extracting the pumps from the forecourt. I went over, I remember, still a barrister. I went over and I said, guys, what's, what's happening here? I said, oh, he's been selling illegal fuel. And I said, well, can I see your paperwork, your, your warrants, etc." And he showed me the paperwork and I said, I, I don't want to worry you here, but I beat a case on exactly um, the uh, uh, law that you're using to extract these pumps. He said, earlier in the year, in Tyrone. Okay. <laughs> it was you. It was you. I said, I, it was me. And he's going to do the same thing here. He'd be back in here in 48 hours. Yeah. And my wee head was starting to go, oh, Jesus. Is this, there another solution? Is here? there another solution? Is this the business opportunity that I have been waiting for? And I said, i tell you what I'll do. I said, what is it you want? Oh, we want him out of here because he's in four other filling stations. I said, I'll tell you what, put the pumps back in and I'll um, terminate his lease with immediate effect and I'll be in here trading tomorrow. He says, but you're a barrister, not a, not a shopkeeper. I said, not anymore. And my wife was pregnant with our first child, eight months pregnant, went home to her and said, honey, the wall group's just being born. <laughs> or no, no, I said there, uh, uh, um, our new baby's just being born and it's not the one you're expecting. <laughs> She's just, what are you talking about? And I says, I've left the bar. She says, what, what, what are you actually talking about? She says, no, I'm in tomorrow starting running this shop. <laughs> what shop? <laughs> and that was the start of it. Okay, it's very they interesting. took the pumps back in. Next day, I was in training. I knew okay. absolutely nothing. Sure, so it was a steep learning curve, obviously, Jesus. then, in terms of retail. You have no idea, uh, yeah. honestly. I do like going to different industries and trying to learn, but like I was totally clueless, 100% clueless. I tell a story very, very briefly some of one particular staff member. I was so clueless. In that shop, because the guy was selling so much fuel, illegal fuel, which I didn't know about, he didn't want people to shop the shop. So I had scouted around the shop and said, is there opportunity in this shop? And I spotted out-of-date waivers. It was November. Out-of-date waivers on the promo um, um, drop-down. I thought, right, there's opportunity there, and there's no sweets at the tills. There's op- That's the only thing I knew. I didn't know anything else. So I said to the, the, the girl at the tills, I said, come on, we'll put some bars of chocolate. We'll sell bars of chocolate from there. And she says, nobody buys anything from the tills here. And I said, hey, that's because we've got nothing at the tills to sell to them. <laughs> but she was very protective of the old guy. Right, and um, so what actually happened was I said we'll put that bar, that box of bounties there and we'll see if we can sell stuff from the tills and little did I know she so wanted me to fail that I would come back out and say any from the office any bounties sold no none sold and three days later I looked at the cameras and what had she been doing she'd been going to the shelves every time a bounty was sold she went to the shelf picked the bounty off the shelf put it back in the one on the tills yeah. And how many thinking we weren't, because I was starting sure. to think nobody's buying anything in the shop. So that's how green I was behind the girls. Absolutely no idea what I was doing. Yeah. You expanded then, you had a couple of spars, a couple of subways. Yes. And, and you had Yogi Berry. Yes, Yogi Berry, spars, subways, and Yogi Berry stores. We got to 10 stores in about seven years. Okay. We opened the store every nine months. For so where are you at now in terms of your, your count? So we're actually, because we, we killed Yogi Berry. That was an expensive foray for me. That didn't work. My management team wasn't strong enough. Okay. I, I opened up a new brand, frozen yogurt and ice cream, and I opened up two or three stores. Um, that was expensive. Lost quite a bit of money, but lost about 600 grand doing that. Um, but it made me focus on our core management team. Uh, I learned a lot of lessons about expansion when you don't have enough management, good quality management in the business. Okay. So we've got eight stores currently. Well, we've got nine, actually. We've got a... Um, a uh, virtual reality gaming center as well. That's oh, right. Very good. So that give that 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 business in itself gives you the opportunity to do other things. Yes. Yeah, so w- what happened was so for the first up until the Yogi Berry scenario, I literally had done it without a management team. I was working sixteen hours because I lost that. By the way, those four bits because that four bits of land, I lost absolutely everything during that journey. The only reason it didn't lose the shop was because the bank didn't want it back. 
because it was underwater. Okay. <laughs> so the bank didn't want it back, so it was underwater. Mm-hmm. I got Henderson's then to back me on the second store. So that's how that all happened. Mm-hmm. I actually did a really good job in the first shop. Henderson's wanted to back me on the second shop, and then they supported me. Sure. Um, but I did that all 16 hours a day because I'd lost everything. Lived in, lost my home during that period. Um, lived in my sister-in-law's back bedroom for five years with my wife and one child. You heard me talk about then a second child and a third child. We were living without a home. Sure. Um, but I worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Got 32 days off in seven years. Did a plan. Pull That's, it back. Did a plan to pull it back and did that. But there was no management team. wasn't strong enough. So what I learned with the Yogi Berry thing was, do you know what? You have to build a stronger team. And I actually set about building a team so that I could actually extricate myself. So... This is for, for your listeners who are, a lot of your listeners are obviously um, going to be solicitors and other people's in those professions. Um, I learned a massive thing then on the next stage of my journey, okay, um, which was all about LinkedIn and building a profile and what that can actually do for you. I might be jumping on here a wee bit, but I was wanting to build a team to run my business for me, but I couldn't attract the right quality of experience and talent into the business. Retail's not that sexy. North Belfast isn't that sexy. I've certainly done my best to turn that around, but it's not that sexy. And I was struggling to find the right talent in the business. But what had actually happened was I started posting on LinkedIn about four or five years ago. And I started telling my narrative of when I fucked things up, if you pardon my French. I started telling my narrative of when we gave bad customer service. I started... I remember a day posting about giving bad customer service, but we went round to the guy's house with a hamper and posted that on LinkedIn and like, 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 oh, so geez, people are interested. This, there's something, there's in, something this. in this. this. This platform that's just really a jobs board for everybody else at the minute. I started posting a couple of things on it um, that were more about my ethos and about what my aspirations were and people actually started to engage with it. And I said, there's something in this. And I kept on posting. And what actually happened was within within 12 months, I'm going to do a knock, knock, knock here. Um, within 12 months, the best and the brightest people in the industry were knocking my door saying, I want to come and work for the Wall Group. I said, I, honestly, I had no idea that would happen. I've given speeches about that to all sorts of uh, recruiters and things. They were not my, and I said, but look, you're working for the biggest player, and I, but I'm just a number to them. I'll not be a number in your business. You, you know what you're doing. You've got a mission. You've got a purpose in what you're doing. I said, but I can't afford you. I don't care. This isn't about money. This is about the journey I want to go on, and I want to go on your journey with you. I'm, I'm joking you. That's incredible, it's, it's yeah. Utterly incredible. I had no idea that was going to happen. I was posting on LinkedIn just by accident. And all of a sudden, these people were going, we want to come and work for you. And I was able to get the best people in the industry to come and work for me for less money. Now, it wasn't because I had less money yeah. <laughs> than the bigger players. It wasn't because I was stingy. At uh, that stage, you just couldn't afford it. I just couldn't have afforded it. I said, look, you're on you know, big money. Don't care. I'll come in, help you build a business, and then you'll maybe be able to get me back to that level of income. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up LinkedIn because obviously that's where we connected. And I mentioned to you beforehand, um, it was a a mutual contact that we Mm -hmm. had liked a comment that you made, and that's what kind of attracted me towards Mm -hmm. your profile and the stuff, the content that you were putting up. Um, Why is it, do you think, that people... Fear. I mean, I know a lot. There are a lot of people on yeah. LinkedIn, and they're just observers. Yeah, they're not putting up anything. Lurkers, I, lurkers, as yeah. I call them. And yeah. I can see people that are in your network yeah. are starting. And I'm sure you know who these people are. Yeah. Are starting to behave on LinkedIn the way you've behaved, yeah. and it must be really growing their businesses. So you've had an impact in many ways um, on a lot of people on LinkedIn. Why is it? Do you feel now, especially lawyers, because of the, and this is no disrespect yeah. to any lawyers, but. You know, they're experts in one thing. Mm-hmm. They may not be, view themselves as business people, but yeah. obviously owning a, a law firm or uh, being a sole practitioner, you must run the business also. But they're not very active on LinkedIn, a lot of them. Why, why do you think that is? There's a couple of reasons. One, fear. Two, they don't realise the power of it. See if you, <laughs> see if people knew the, the power of what I have created and what it can do for me. Only a few years ago, as I've just said, I was um, in my sister-in-law's back bedroom. I've now launched a venture capital business. We'll probably talk about that later on. But 
that all came about because I believed in um, certain things. I believed in goal setting. I believed in adding value to everybody's journey that I come in contact with. I believe in trying to create something huge. And people buy into that. If Gavin believes that, maybe, maybe I could play a wee part in his journey or maybe he could help me with my journey. And all of a sudden you create a virtuous sort of circle of people trying to help each other. Um, people are also afraid, if I say something, my competition's going to know what I'm up to. Yeah. Look, it's all about execution. <laughs> 90% of people will never execute. So the fact that you're prepared to share, as I used to call it, the secret sauce, the fact that you're prepared to share it, people just go, wow. Yeah, and you mentioned the fear. Fear of, I suppose, you know, you put a post up yesterday and somebody said, Gavin, I might give you a hand to, to um, correct your punctuation. Or your oh, that's right. <laughs> so some people are afraid they'll say something wrong, they, they, they spell something wrong. Some people are just afraid to put their opinion out there. Um, and then obviously you've got trolls. I mean, you've had your experience with trolls. What have you experienced in that regard? Because it's all part of the, it's all, look, it makes you stronger. You know, it's a, it's a journey. This is a journey. I have had people say all sorts of people gaslighting. I've had packs of them chasing me for months. I did. I've actually, I think I talked. There was a, a post I did about recruiters this week. I used to have loads of recruiters because of a speech I gave at an event saying that we could slash the recruitment budget in the UK from thirty-six billion to eighteen billion if we were better. But the nuance was, it's up to us to be better as business people to attract people into our business rather than have to pay ten grand to get a recruiter to do it. Because um, I had worked that out. Um, so people are afraid because of all those things. But, you know, if you actually want to achieve something, th that's where it's at. It's about having... Because if you are prepared to stick your head above the parapet and to take a few shots, people respect that. They mightn't actually say and mightn't even comment but there'll come a day when you'll meet them in real life and they'll go, do you know what, I've been watching you from afar. Uh, do you know what, and you, you just, I'm getting so much from it. What actually happens then, I, I, I can tell you, is that like my private messages, so my DMs, there'll be loads of people who are lurkers. They DM me and me all the time. Please keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring me. I know I haven't. I might have done it myself. Yeah, yeah, do you know <laughs> what I mean? I know I haven't commented yet, but you know, your ability. And the other thing that I do is, is I nearly... I allow myself probably one rant per year and I make a thing out of that, but the rest of it is all positive. And I don't criticize anybody on their posts. I don't go on and give critical. I just keep mine all positive. And people see, even when I'm under attack, I mean, I've had loads of people attack me and I'll just go, thanks for the feedback or give them a wee like or something like that. I know it winds the trolls up. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I, they want you to go back, yeah. um, but I don't give them the satisfaction. I keep it positive and people um, become attracted to that. Sure. Now, in terms of putting yourself out there, you went one step further and you set up the, the this concept about the speed mentor. Yeah, so the speed mentor thing actually came out of LinkedIn again. So what happened was that I was getting loads and loads of business people reaching out to me, other entrepreneurs reaching out and saying, oh, your positivity, the way you're building your business. Um, like I remember about three or four years ago, I took, I deleted my bio Right? I deleted my bio and I just put in hashtag 28 stores by 2024. <laughs> now, this all sounds like people do all sorts of things in bios, but back then they didn't. And I had people stop me in the street going, how many stores you got now, Gavin? And shouting at me across the street. How's the store count? Are you getting on? Yeah. But um, putting that out there holds me accountable because I then know people are asking me if I don't have um, another store to tell them about or develop the business, um, then I feel I've let them down on myself a wee bit. And I like holding myself accountable. But lots of other business people were reaching out to me, sending me DMs, can I meet you, can I meet you? I ended up, this is going to sound absolutely crazy, because it started building the management team by then. I ended up doing up to 40, 40 hours a week. Now, I'm a big, I'm a big worker, so I do enjoy yeah. working. Four, up to 40 hours a week mentoring other business people. Right. Unpaid. And then it got so crazy. I said, I can't keep doing this. It's not fair on my family, et cetera, et cetera. I said, I need to find a way to shorten that 40 hours down to a few hours. Okay. And one night, I hardly ever watched TV, but it was flicking channels. And there was a speed dating program. <laughs> there was a speed dating program. 
and I, I, honestly, I wasn't watching it. I promise. And <laughs> and they went. That's it. That's it. That's it. Speed mentor. Speed mentor was born. Was born in that moment, and I said, "Could I give enough value in twenty minutes? Because I don't want to do it if I'm not giving them value. I know I can give value if I can give them time." Could I give enough value in 20 minutes to actually make a difference to somebody's life? So you organised these events where business people came along, they queued up to sit down for 20 yeah. minutes to speak to you. Is that, that's right. That's the way it worked. So uh, they pitched to you, what do I do here? Yeah. What yeah. would you do in, in my In 20 situation? minutes, speed mentor. And then I started showcasing. At first, I didn't know whether I could... Sh- then I started showcasing it on um, LinkedIn. Then I said to myself, because Northern Ireland, people, if you ask for help in Northern Ireland, that's people take it as a sign of vulnerability. Yeah. What happens in Northern Ireland? You have a sign of vulnerability. The boys come around and do your kneecaps. Sure. <laughs> that's what. It, yeah. that, that's the mentality. So I said, "Could I get?" Then I said to one of the one of the mentees at the Speedman, "I says, do you mind if we take take uh, we take a wee selfie here?" Oh, great! Are you going to put me on your LinkedIn? Right. Then I thought, bingo. Right. So the next one. That, so I then the started, appetite is there. Then, the appetite was there. Then I, they wanted to be on my um, LinkedIn. Okay. Um, then I did a world record. I did over seven hours speed mentoring in a row. In 20 minute slots right. I posted at the end of that I said you know what I'm a bit worried I didn't give enough value To the last couple of people <laughs> I, I was genuine about it And they then posted Gavin don't worry There was plenty of value And honestly I do have a, I'm sort of high energy sort of guy And I have people going away From those 20 minute sessions Saying you changed my life This is going to sound evangelical yeah. But you, you changed my life What happened The energy there was unbelievable I now feel like I can actually conquer things That I couldn't conquer before yeah, sometimes people way. just need to hear that, don't they? Yeah, just that you're enough. Sure. You can do it. Yeah. And but it's more than just twenty minutes. People think it's just twenty minutes. So what happens is I will review the LinkedIn profile of the person who's coming to see me. Okay. I will ask them to think about what they want to talk to me about. So I have a lot of information about them before the twenty minutes okay. and then I'll support them after that twenty minutes. Okay. So ultimately I did that for, for a year or something like that, but then people were wanting more than twenty minutes. I didn't want to turn it into a business, a paid-for thing, because I enjoyed doing it. I felt guilty. I was making my money elsewhere anyway. And ultimately, people were just asking me more and more times, I, I want to pay you for mentorship. I want to pay you. And eventually, what I did was I went to England and paid somebody else more than I was ever going to charge anybody here, a guy called Rob Moore. I felt if I pay somebody more than I'm ever going to charge somebody, that might release me okay. and enable me to charge for it. Which it did. Okay. Uh, so so you now have mentees. Th- so yeah, well, I did then for a couple of years or so. I, I started doing then, I called them speed mentor retreats, where we would take 12 business people away for the weekend. We would stay in a hotel and I'd give them two days of me just downloading yeah. all my energy and my knowledge and stuff. I read a lot of books about personal development. I'm really into it because of my ups and downs in life, having absolutely nothing and building a seven year sacrifice plan to make my way back, all of that stuff that I've done. Um, so I did those quite successfully as well. We had massive success for those people. And I have actually recently stopped doing the mentorship because I've got too much work on my venture capital business. Yeah, now, we haven't even touched on, the, on the Speed Mentor podcast itself. Well, yes, that's, so it, that's out there. So there's the Speed Mentor podcast. Speed Mentor is two words. Um, podcast, so I have 160-odd episodes of that. And literally, if you want a blueprint to how to have success in your life, I literally have every single topic you could possibly ever think of covered in the Speed Mentor podcast. I'd agree, and it applies to all types of businesses. So All, all types, personal development, mindset, marketing, business plans, um, franchising, um, how, how to sacrifice, how to, to goal set, um, Everything you could possibly think of. I even do quite a bit of singing in there as well. I heard you singing one time and it was enough for me. Yeah, (laughs) probably is. I don't know how that even started. We've got our own island called Walrus Island. We're doing with Dickhead Island as well um, as a sort of counterfactual to what we're trying to create in the world. So Speak Matter podcast, really good. Okay, Uh, and It's it's number one um, uh, sort of business podcast in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I'd highly recommend anybody who's never heard of it to listen to that. It's superb. I've listened to uh, quite a lot of episodes myself. Now, and I did notice last week you've decided to pull back from a weekly... Yes. um, ...from weekly episodes to monthly because you've just got too much on your plate at the minute. So, look, I could outsource some of it, but the authenticity be gone. I, I know other people who have successful podcasts and they're outsourcing the, the sort of the scripting and the titles and some of the stuff that they're working on. And mine, if you listen to mine, 
you'll, you'll hear it. it's totally it's, it's definitely totally it's unique you. it's all you uh, it's all me and i just couldn't bring myself to do that maybe as a failing on my part i didn't want to outsource that so i've had to go from weekly to monthly just because of too much on with my venture capital business sure. well can we go, go on to that because you did yeah. say before we, we we hit the record button that you invested in a business which has now led you on to um the venture capital ca- catalyst stroke capitalist yes um and it's very much aimed at lawyers, isn't it? It's very much in the legal space yeah, so, as well. So what happened? So back in about 2017, I was looking for opportunities outside of the Wall Group, and I started doing a bit of angel investing. Um, started attending tech conferences and sort of embedding myself in that sort of space. Uh, one of my earliest investments was a, a a startup called Asset Nexus, which ultimately has led me to um, launch the, the venture capital with my my co-founder Andrew Cuthbert, but. Asset Nexus um, is basically, uh, soon, with my law background, as soon as I heard this, I just was blown away by it. It's, it's effectively a cloud-based um, will system. So as we all know, your parchment and quill almost is still in play. It's been there 300 years in um, probate. And uh, basically, this was creating a, a, a will um, in the cloud where a client can self-manage their assets during their lifetime. So that at point of death, there's a lot more to it. It's marketing element as, as well. There's, there's a lot Slizzers will absolutely love it. So there's a marketing element to it as well. But Slizzers at point of death, imagine not having to spend, I know you know quite a bit about the law yourself, mm. imagine not having to spend nine months hoping about looking for what they own. Um, what properties they own, what car they own, writing off the banks. Imagine having all that at your fingertip. Sure. Um, at point of death. And uh, you see, you see, solicitors regularly advertise looking for wills. Yeah. So to have a central, there is no, there's so no. What's we want to create a central um, place whereby wills are housed, where you can access knowledge that they're there. Well, you know yourself. Somebody might make a will with one solicitor and make another one with another solicitor. Yeah, which is the valid will, yeah. Yeah, and one of them might never come to light. Yeah. So to, to to take care of all of that stuff to develop a marketing platform as well, uh, to get new solicitors for clients and also to get clients to self-manage their assets during their lifetime to be ready for the point of death. Okay, so what stage is that particular business at now? So that's launched. We're just signing up our first um, solicitors. We just signed up two solicitors in the last week. Pardon me, platform's all built and it's on rollout at the minute. And uh, we're actually doing demos for solicitors um, in the south and in the north. Actually, we're getting quite a bit of interest in the south. Okay. Um, at the minute, lockdown, it would have gone out earlier. COVID-19, a lot of solicitors were sort of maybe worried about <laughs> their practices, actually, survival. Sure. Um, so... How do you get across the, the barrier there where, where wills need to be signed? Yeah, we still have to do it. So we, we scan the will into the cloud. Okay. So we can't get around that piece. Okay. It has to be... So it's a, d- a digital copy of the will. Okay. But the, sli- but the client can give... can create a footprint of their instructions... So it saves on maybe disputes at a later stage. So if they ping a message down to the solicitor to say, by the way, you know what, I want to cut we we dolly out of the will yeah. for whatever reason. That's actually a digital footprint of um, an instruction. Yes. And it's timed, etc. And it's all on the system. Okay. So if a will was ever challenged, somebody says, Oh, there were the solicitor talked them into this or there were or they weren't of sound mind at the time. Actually, there's three points of instruction on a digital platform. Okay to the decision to actually change the will. Okay, so who would hold on to the original copy of the will? Solicitor. Solicitor, Solicitor still. Okay. So we, we decided when we were building this, so there's a thing called Farewell in the UK who are trying to cut solicitors out of the will-making process. So they're actually trying to create a whole lot of wills outside of solicitors. And we decided, listen, solicitors um, know their stuff. We, res- we respect that. I come from a legal background, obviously. We respect the knowledge and expertise that they give at the time of making the will. The client still makes the will with the solicitor. And we would rather respect that and actually grow a relationship with solicitors' practices sure. for a period of time. They're I think 20. that yeah, the tradition is for people still to go to solicitors. Yeah. And I think yeah. it'd be a long time before that would change. Yeah, no, I think that's the way. And right, rightly so, I think it's right yeah. that people 100%. go and get the hundred percent. We, but we want to enhance. But what sli- what clients want though, and what solicitors want, has probably changed. Sure. With technology now, solicitors, in my view, respectful view, and I want to be part of helping solicitors actually make this um, transformation to really adopt technology because there's so much opportunity out there every other industry 
hasn't adopted yeah. and really law is probably lagging a wee bit behind. Well, I think the onset of the, the coronavirus might yeah. have changed the mindset slightly because you know, a lot of solicitors are gone online now. Yeah, they're online. They're soon, but they're still nowhere near. No. I mean, if you look at PwC, you've done a report on marketing, for instance, yeah. for solicitors, 1.9% is the average across the industry for marketing practices. Yeah. That's yeah. nowhere near enough no. on, on marketing. No. Who, who's actually doing proper marketing online? Yeah. Solicitors firms, very, very few. Sure. I know of one firm in Northern Ireland that, this is a, I hope this is a wake-up call to some solicitors, one firm in Northern Ireland is getting 60% of their new business from online inquiries. Yeah. They're taking it seriously. Yeah. And that opportunity there is massive, and it's there for everyone if solicitors would start to adopt some of the technology um, opportunities that are out, are out there. It's amazing even to look at the, the amount of solicitors that don't even have a website uh, these you days. Know what? Uh, honestly. It's just... Uh, I wonder how they're doing business. Well, they're doing far less business than they could. Than they be. could do, yeah. It's, it's sure. as simple as it's as simple as that. You know, you might say, "Oh, I like to get referral business." Listen, you, you, you know, just leaving so much on the table. Sure. What's what's the point in going through law school, etc., 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 to sit there, um, treading water? Yeah. And tell me, in terms of of asset nexus, are you getting much traction with solicitors yet? Yes, they're taking a wee bit of time to. Um, sort of coax them round to the idea of it. Uh, we've literally just signed up one of the most progressive solicitors in Northern Ireland who got it immediately. Okay. As soon as they saw it, went, oh my God. Yeah. So we're building databases within our system. Mm. So for instance, like you think about how many opportunities there are. This is going to sound a wee bit morbid, but it is probate we're talking about. Yes. At a funeral. Imagine you had all the contacts and email addresses of people who were at a, at a funeral because that had been curated by your client during their lifetime. Mm. And you could actually um, inform them of the time and the place of the funeral. Yes. Provide a service Yeah, um, from the solicitor's practice. Yeah. Um, with your branding going out to each and every one of them. Do you know what they would say? Oh, my God. That's some service that solicitor's doing. They're actually so, providing so that's an service. add-on. that's an add-on as part of the service. Yeah. Yeah. Why does my solicitor not do that? In fact, my solicitor don't even know they know where my will is. Yeah. And... You know, we've lots of elements uh, around that built into our system that will really be attractive. Okay. So in terms of the change itself then, yeah. can we talk about that? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, a venture capital fund. Yeah. How did you go about setting that up? Yeah, so basically out of the angel investing, um, uh, Asset Nexus was one of them, I met uh, a brilliant guy, Andrew Cuthbert, and um, who's a bit of a, a tech genius. And actually, to be fair, that's underselling him. Um, his business strategy is unbelievable, particularly by trying to create massive value in businesses. He's done it for a lot of other people. He's now doing it for us, as it were, you know, helping us. So we in Northern Ireland, we were looking at, um, do you know what? There's not enough support. There's not enough venture capital. Startups here are thin on the ground. Dublin has really started to boom the last few years in this space. There's yeah. lots of activity, but Northern Ireland's probably lagging 10 years behind. And really, the venture capital up here is really just supported by Invest NI. Okay. Now they've come in to plug a gap, um, government money, but it's a, it actually it's a handbrake on private um, money coming in. Okay. So we decided, you know what, we could plug the gap with sort of my knowledge of personal development and building people and marketing yourself and personal brand, Andrew's knowledge uh, around deep tech, um, around business strategy. We've brought in a guy called Henry Algio, who was, I don't know if you've heard of Bruin Dolphin, um, their FTSE 250 company. Like he brought Bruin Dolphin in Northern Ireland from zero. He's an investment manager from zero to 600 million okay. under management. And he then went on to be the MD, UK MD and COO of Bruin Dolphin. So we've brought him in early. We've got someone in who's got massive experience in the venture capital space. So it's not just about myself and Andrew, but we've built this team. Yep. And we're now raising 50 million pounds. Okay. For tech and science startups. So you're out there looking for investors at this yeah, moment? Yeah, right there looking for investors at the minute. We have actually, here's an interesting one. I can't give too much details away. Our first investment is in the south. Okay. Um, and um, we have a term sheet all signed and back to us. And our first investment is actually in the south. Very we good. drove down to Cork to meet them. Um, some great stuff happening with Enterprise Ireland in the south. It's probably one of the leading enterprise agencies in the world. Okay. Um, and... Uh, some really ex exciting stuff Very you good. know to create a, I like going into new industries I like creating stuff 
I'm not afraid to say I don't know the answers. And I say, by the way, I say that to everybody. Do you know what? Don't be afraid to go to a new industry because sometimes you go to a new industry and you start seeing it f- with fresh eyes that the people in the industry don't see it. Yeah. So can I ask you, 50 million, what would be your average investment, would yeah. you think, in a tech startup? How many businesses could that possibly so support? I'm probably up to about 20 businesses. So our ticket size is about 250,000 to 2.5 million. Okay, so that first one is um, 800,000 euro, that first one we're doing. Um, we have a second one that we're looking at now, close to term sheet. Um, I think it's 1.2 million sterling on that one. Um, and we we want to keep a, a bit in the fund so we can follow on our successful investments. And what way does that work? Do you need then to go back and run every business by the investors? or No, so they invest the into the fund. So basically... Um, for instance, we're speaking to some um, you, you know, big institutions at the minute. Um, one thing that we've learned, so it took us a year, so COVID really stopped us in our tracks. We were, we were due to be in London and all around the place um, raising money in March. And then because of COVID, we didn't even actually get authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority until the 1st of July. Okay. So it was all a bit of a disaster. But what we've sort of learned is that if we are going to build a venture capital business to support startups, uh, we can support them right across Europe. Uh, the raising of the money isn't going to happen in Northern Ireland. Okay. It's taken us a while to raise that. We would love art to realise that. We would love to do it in Northern Ireland, but in reality, it's not going to happen in Northern Ireland. Yeah. If there were enough in Northern Ireland, I mean, I'm really passionate. People know who follow me on LinkedIn, like um, Mr. Flippin' Northern Ireland. Andrew is more internationalist. He's worked and lived all around the world. And I want to showcase Northern Ireland to the world. But what I've realised on this journey is that um, we have to create an ecosystem within Northern Ireland. So there aren't enough startups because who are they going to borrow the money? Not borrow the money. Who are they going to get the investment off? There, there, there aren't venture capital businesses here to back early, sort of early stage um, startups. So is it purely tech or would you look tech, at the tech. like, I mean, Gymshark is a huge success. So tech and science. If there is a traditional business model, we have talked about this, if there's a traditional business model, but they're going to rapidly... Um, fire up their expansion, etc. By use of tech, okay. that would that would be enough for us. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's exciting. Well, the best. And our our target, our target should get our target in oh, here. Yeah. I'm a big believer in what I call guerrilla goals. Yes. And whenever I have mentees, we we really do go into the guerrilla goals in depth. And our target is to create 10 billion of value, 10 billion of value in 10 years. Okay. For Northern Ireland. I'm locked on. Honestly, I'm locked yeah, on. You're locked on to and that. A couple of. A couple of wee wobbles there a few weeks back, but see this week, I'm absolutely locked on. Very good. We're going to do it. So can I ask, you've got Asset Nexus as part of that. Is that part of so the Asset fund? Nexus actually is the fund? So no, that's a pr- So that's it, it might become, but only if it can justify it on its own two feet. So sure. it's a startup I've privately invested in it as an okay. angel investor. If at some stage it's making great traction, it might, it, it might get investment Expansion. and change, but only if it's justified. Sure, okay. Any, what I would say there is anybody who has a great vision, I mean, we, we are looking for investees. So anybody, what we're looking for is people with ideas that have the potential to change the world. Okay, that's a strap line. People with ideas that have the potential to change the world. We're looking at people who want to disrupt their industries. And we're looking at people who want to create a billion of value, want to leave a legacy that will last beyond them. That's the type of investee we're looking for. And we're also obviously looking for uh, potential investors at the minute. Uh, our minimum minimum investment is a hundred thousand euros, actually, because we've got a European passport. So it's, our minimum investment is a hundred thousand euros. So anybody with a hundred thousand or more who's interested in actually making a, a dent in the world, give us a shout. Okay, it's the change. The change. Uh, the change venture capital, and our website is www.thechange.vc. Okay, thanks, Gavin, and the best of luck with that. Thank Can you. we go back then to? Yeah. I want to talk to you about your relationship with alcohol mm-hmm. because obviously you're very vocal in terms of that. You gave up alcohol, I think it was over 12 years ago. Yeah. And you've talked about that extensively on your podcast, on LinkedIn, various different platforms. Um, I mentioned I saw a post of yours and that's how we became connected ourselves on LinkedIn. And you once put up a particular post where you mentioned that it started off with, if I could give you a pill that would do X, Y and Z, would you take that pill? And the answer was yes. And that pill was to give up alcohol. That caught my eye. And actually, I've given up alcohol myself, as I mentioned beforehand. And I think it's only when you give it up that you realise the difference it makes. Like I'm like anybody else, whether you're north of the border or south of it, 
you know, it, it's built into the DNA of this country um, that you every celebration, every weekend, you know, we get alcohol. It's it's around us everywhere. And look, I, I did that. I did that to the max. Like everything I do in life, you're probably getting you're probably getting the flavor of it now. I do it all on. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 100% in everything I do, and I was 100% in on alcohol, just like everything else. Now I still manage to create a good career as barrister, etc., etc. But at 20, at the age of 27, um, was a sort of pivot point in my life. At 27, I said, you know what, I need to start doing something um, with my life. All right, I've qualified as solicitor. I'm in the civil service at this stage, but I need to do more. Um, or I'm just going to slide away here drinking at the weekend. You were quite young and maybe quite mature to, to be able to make that decision at that age. I, it's funny, do you know what? It's cr- I see some people come, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to speak to a lot of people younger and older. Some of the 21-year-olds, 20-year-olds that I see now, I'm able to, and they're so far ahead of me, it's it's unbelievable. And I'm saying, God, you've got such a start. This is it's brilliant, it's really exciting. So 27, I felt that I, I left, but... You know, maybe I had to have all that mess in my life at that stage. But at 27, I decided I wanted to give up alcohol. And all my friends were heavy drinkers. We were all heavy drinkers. And it took me 10 years. In fact, I met my wife the first weekend that I, I actually gave it up. This is a wee salient lesson to anybody who wants to know about alcohol. The first weekend I tried to give it up when I was in my late 20s, um, I went to a pub and I met my wife. Now, if she'd seen me in my usual state... You wouldn't be married today. And she's the greatest blessing of my life, so we wouldn't be married today. So, I mean, there's there's the proof point there, and that started there. But still took me 10 years of on, off, binging, on, off, from 27 to 37. At 37, I that sixth sense, sense I had about the property crash, I literally in 2017, March 2017, decided enough was enough after one crazy binge, too many. And that's it. Literally locked myself in a room. I don't think I've maybe even gone into this much stuff before. Literally locked me. It was like train spotting. That's what I said. I'm locking myself in here. And when I come out, I'm and officially off it. That, that's it. That'll be it. Yeah. And you never looked back. And I never looked back. And did you find it difficult at the time? Because obviously, you know, personally, I watched lots of videos on YouTube, yes. different guys giving up what to expect at different stages. Luckily for me, it was two months in or three months in and the lockdown happened. So yeah. going to pubs wasn't a temptation. But a lot of more people were drinking at home. But luckily, I managed to avoid that. But did you find, did you find it difficult in, in social settings starting out? Your time, your your timing was, you know, good in that context. So I tried to do the social setting piece. So I at, at the start, I said I'm not going to let this affect my life, in the context of you know my friends and stuff. But I soon found out, <laughs> they just they couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Not only well even because it just didn't enjoy it. You see, by the time, honestly, folks, you see, by the time you get to your third or fourth pint, you, you've no idea how much shite you're talking, honestly. It's absolutely... It's <laughs> you're all just... And that's probably why people are paranoid about non-drinkers being there. And that was an uncomfortable experience for them, and it was an uncomfortable experience for me. Um, what I actually what actually happened was my, my personality... All right, I have a big enough personality, but it filled out whenever I started meeting people for coffee instead of meeting them for pints, I became a better, more rounded person. I started listening to people more. It wasn't about me talking, mad dog. It was about me listening to and having conversations with people. Um, and giving up alcohol was one of the, the greatest gifts that ever happened to me. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult for people in Ireland, really, isn't it? Because they, they've... You know, they've been drinking for so long. Yeah. It's a crutch. They've been leaning on that crutch for so long. And the thoughts of not having that crutch to lean on is, is what puts a lot of people off. You know, you're going, you're going somewhere, right? How many, how, how many drinks to have a wee preload, a couple of glasses of wine or a couple of beers or whatever? That gets me just, you know. So you see now, whenever, say, there's a black tie event, for instance, because I have a lot of experience of not drinking after 13 years. I've, I've talked about this in the podcast. When I have a black tie thing, I'm telling you, I'm the most confident person in that room when I walk in. I know I am. You're in control. I'm on total control. And I tell you what, I I will be able to identify the people I want to speak to that night. And some of the people I've been able to get to meet, to have conversations with and have follow-ups with, because I'm in total control, um, you know, because you get some big players at things like that. 
Yeah. And normally, maybe if you're drinking, you're at the bar and you don't give a damn about it. Yes. Um, honestly, those are great opportunities um, for me. That people who are drinking are missing out on. Yeah. Honestly, the productivity. So, look, I have my family. I have my family and my work. Um, if I had drink, I had a guy. I had a guy there actually. He was not a guy from Dublin, living in Germany, and he he was. We were talking about alcohol, and he said, oh, "Sure, I um, I don't think I need to do that." And I said, "Well, well, let's let's just talk about your alcohol consumption here." And he says, "Look, I'm I'm on a bender once a month, right? Okay, so how long does a bender last? So turned out the bender lasts a day." And then the day after, he says, I am fit for nothing for the day after. And I said, what about the day after that? So we worked out about two and a half days a month of total no, zero productivity. And then we did 12 months, 30 days. Full month. A full month. In working weeks, that's six weeks. I says, I have six weeks on you every year. And his flipping mind just melted. And he then got it. And... Um, that's a, it's such a powerful weapon. The clarity of thought, I'm telling you, see the clarity, you will be starting to experience this now, but that builds and builds. It builds other levels, the clarity of thought on what you're doing, what your goals are, about the ability to stick to your goals. Yes. About the ability to stick to your diet or whatever, whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life. Yeah. Now, I've noticed that personally in the last six to eight months, even though we've gone through the pandemic, in terms of my own business, the opportunities that are opening up and, you know, I say to people, the pandemic's actually been good to me. Um, in reality, I think it is the clarity of thought and the ability, you know, the extra time you have on people who are drinking, it's definitely a factor. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Um, I know for a fact, I was, I say, I think I am a survivor, if anything. And I think I knew that sh- I knew the crash was coming and I knew it bought that land. And I think it told me I wouldn't have made it out the other side. Yeah. I would not have made it out the other side if I hadn't have given up just before sure. the SH1T hit the fan. Yeah, because you've got the whole depressing side yeah. of the after effects of alcohol. Well, people that I knew really well, people I spent the next decade um, hiding under their pillows, drinking two bottles of wine a night, trying to make it or hope that it would go away. I went out there and said, you know what, I'm going to work really hard and, and make sure I come out the other side stronger. And actually, after the crash, I was probably one of the first people Rebanked, if not definitely the first in Belfast anyway, rebanked because I had such clarity. I was working so hard. I handed over all my property really peacefully. There was no messing about. I said, take it all back. I backed myself to come back here. And I had a bank back me two years after the crash. Only two years. Very good. Well done. Well, Gavin, it's been a pleasure having you on the legal lunch. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And thanks a million for inviting me into your home and we hope maybe someday in the future uh, you'll come back on and chat to us again. And the best of luck with your new venture, The Change VC. Thank you very much. It's been great to um, be on your podcast and thanks for the invite.